praise the name of the Lord. He's worthy to be praised. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Tonight I'm going to get right into my word. I'm going to spend no time on no small talk because I've got something to say. The Lord has put in my heart, and I want to share it with you. Before I do, I'm going to ask Brother Marvin to ask the Lord to help me. Amen. I want to begin with saying tonight, back in 2019, I spoke what I believe to have been a prophetic word. On that Sunday night, I was led by the Spirit to tell you that God was going to reform the church. Now, we know that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. We know that he formed the church. And we know that he has the will and the power to reform the church to be able to stand against the wiles of the enemy so that the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Even if he has to put it back on the potter's wheel and reshape it and mold it. But little did I know the things that God would allow us to go through over these past two years. But he's using it to cause the church to hunger and thirst after righteousness again. I've been declaring to you over and over, something's moving, something's changing. He has to get the church ready for the spiritual showdown between good and evil, and he's got to get us ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ. I spoke on what Reformation was. I said Reformation is the action or process of reforming an institution or a practice. That reformation means making changes to something with the intention of setting it back on the right path. I declare to you God's going to institute a reformation that's going to set the church back in order. That he's going to do a new thing in our midst. The reformation is going to take us back to the basic foundations of Christianity. To where God is reverenced again. The word is the absolute truth again. Prayer is effective again, and worship is pure again. We'll once again bring fresh renewal to the church. The church has wandered off track for too long, lowering the standards of holiness in return for attendance. There was a reformation in the 16th century church which led to the reform of the Roman Catholic Church, 
that led to the Protestant church being formed. Now here we are five centuries later, and God is reforming the church to be vibrant and strong and effective again. I'm telling you it has begun. God is starting to set the church back on the right path before he calls her home. And church, we're fixing to be in a spiritual fight like never before. The enemy has divided our nation. His strategy is to divide and conquer and is working against the world. He's turning family against family, the government against the people, one race against another race, one political party against another party. And he's coming for the church next to try to split it. That might work on the things of this world, but not with the kingdom of God. Because we serve the master of this universe. His name is Jehovah God Almighty. The evil leaders of this world know what happens if you split an atom. It causes more neutrons to split other atoms, causing a chain reaction that in turn causes an atomic explosion. I say that to say this. When they come for the church, and they will, they're fixing to find out what happens when they try to split the church, a spiritual atom. They're going to face a spiritual explosion. Like an atom, when you try to split the church, it's going to cause a chain reaction that's going to lead to a spiritual explosion that's going to destroy the works of the enemy. Just like in Stephen's day, when they stoned him in an effort to try to silence the church and split it, it scattered and destroyed, instead of destroying the church, it caused a spiritual explosion. And we have a decision to make if we want to be a part of this last day reformation or not. This is the beginning of the 21st century reformation of the church that will be used for the transformation of lives to reap the harvest of souls five centuries later. I'm telling you, Christ is coming back after a church without a spot or a blemish. That's what this reformation is going to do. It's going to prepare us to be ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. That's the church that has truly been transformed and a part of this last day reformation, where once again, righteousness and holiness exist in the hearts of true believers who hunger and thirst after it. They shall be filled. Once again, it's not going to happen by programs and by decreasing interest in church, there is evidence now that signifies this process has begun. There's a shifting that's taking place in the atmosphere. You can't put God in a box. You can't contain him. Never forget his glory fills the earth. I'm telling you, I feel it in here. When we are weak, he's made strong. And the strength of a church will no longer be measured in numbers and in deeds alone. Instead, its strength will be measured by its commitment to spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ in these last days. For you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. You know, when there's a lot of people, I don't care what they're doing, they can make a lot of noise and never accomplish nothing. For years, the church has been going through many different styles and trends and fads and traditions. From the changing of songs, changing programs, changing the look of the facilities, and lowering standards, mostly conforming to cultural likings. 
We have long believed if we're going to be effective, we've got to create this, and we've got to create that, and we've got to offer this, and we've got to offer that. We've got to change this, and we've got to change that. We have to let up on this, and we've got to let up on that. We've got to be more user-friendly. We've got to be more convenient. We've got to have more advanced technology, more creative concepts. We must have shorter services. We must have fewer services, all due to the fact that we have concluded that our beliefs have caused the church to be burdensome and lethargic by our standards. And to increase in anything or to require more commitment of anyone falls into the accusatory concept of being religious fanatics. Therefore, we have said and we have watched the decline of the church while the ward waxes worse and worse. Can I tell you, there's nothing new under the sun that it was Jesus then and it's still Jesus now that saves and delivers and heals and draws a crowd. This hour that we are in was prophesied to come to pass in Matthews 24 and 12. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Nobody wants any laws biblically, and now not even governmentally. Even declaring the Bible nor the Constitution is not even certain anymore. Things on the world stage to many looks bad, folks. Evil's rampant. They're ready to wave their victory flags. The worldview is we are free-falling. We haven't hit the bottom yet. That it's going to get a lot deeper than we can imagine. And the church feels hopeless. It's been in hiding and silent for way too long. People's hearts are failing them because of fear. And their hearts are growing cold and indifferent to their fellow man. But I say, hold on just a minute. Don't wave your victory flag just yet, Satan. This all looks different from heaven's perspective, from heaven's point of view. The church has not and will not be canceled. The biggest problem the far left has with their woke agenda is they have woken a sleeping giant called the church. They're no longer going to face the church in its slothfulness and silence. They're fixing to face the church in its greatest hour of strength and power. Help is on the way. The church is fixing to rise up and our enemy is fixing to be scattered. Hallelujah. I told you, and I still believe, in the midst of all this chaos, wickedness, and darkness, that right in the middle of it all, will be the church shining brightly in this darkness, making the biggest comeback of the church in history. Did God not say that the latter shall be greater than the former? Now, I'm fixing to show you a picture. I've been searching for a picture to find a picture as close as to what I see or what I can picture in my mind or what God is saying here. And so I'll ask these guys to put up a slide for you. Would you put up that slide? I want you to look at this slide. First, I want you to see all the black, all the darkness. But do you know what those bright spots are? That's the places where God is going to deposit his glory, to where the glory of God will pierce the darkness of this earth. I believe that's what we're going to see in these last days, the world might grow cold and indifferent and dark, but there's going to be a light spring up, and it's going to be the church, and it's going to be the glory of the Lord that's shining through the darkness. Why do I believe that so much? It's because I know what's coming back to the church 
And what is that? It's what's been missing from the church for way too long. That our passion have caused it to depart from us. Tonight, through the word of God, King David is going to tell us what we're missing and how to bring it back so that God can restore the church and this nation. Is anybody ready to find out what it is? So I'm going to go to the book of Samuel, where I'm going to draw God's message to tonight. But before we go into chapter 8, I want to visit some preceding chapters in the book of Samuel. I first want to set up the importance of the Ark of the Covenant to Israel. Because where the ark dwelled was where the glory dwelled. God's glory brought Israel his favor. In the Old Testament days, the ark represented God's tabernacle. And it represented his tangible presence among his people and served as God's throne on the earth. I still believe God's presence is tangible today. I can feel him touch me. I can feel his presence. He dwells in my heart. In Exodus 25, 10, Moses receives the command from God to build an ark out of acacia wood. And once it's built, he was to place inside it the golden pot of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the Ten Commandments. Then it was covered with a plate of gold that formed what they called the mercy seat, and then there were two cherubims. And it was recorded Moses often knelt in between the cherubims to hear from the Lord. It was where the glory of the Lord dwelt. Upon completing it, the Israelites carried the ark with them, during those 40 years, they spent wandering in the desert. And after the conquest of Canaan, it was brought to Shiloh to rest and to be cared for by Eli's two sons. So let me set up this era of time I want to talk about. I want to talk to you about a time when Israel came to decide they wanted an earthly king to rule over them like the surrounding nations. Prior to this decision, they typically just normally trusted God. This decision came at a time when they were facing a Philistine threat at a time of Samuel the prophet. They were very afraid of their Philistine enemy. So Israel requested a king like the other nations had already established. Upon them making a request to the prophet Samuel, he becomes angry with them because of how they were going about it. He believed they were rejecting God's rule, which is found in Deuteronomy 17, long before the time of Saul. God said, when you come to the land, the Lord God is giving you to possess and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like a nation that are around me. And you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. He made it very clear that God's rule was, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. So the problem was the Israelites did not ask for a king that God would choose, but one that the world would choose. They didn't wait for God's timing. Saul was chosen king both by Samuel and public acclamation. And God was reluctant to give Israel king when they demanded it. But because they, were, because they were looking for an earthly king and not a heavenly king, and because they did not want to wait for God's timing, but they were persistent in the request. So God says, you want a king? Go ahead, you'll get a king. Israel felt a king would be their answer to their problems. A king would judge them and protect them and fight their battles. Israel came to this conclusion because all the other nations had a king. Israel wanted an earthly king in spite of Yahweh, who had always judged them, who had always fought their battles. Now, I want to make note here that under Saul, the ark was with Israel at this time. But the king was too impatient to consult before engaging in battle, as many other leaders did before they went to battle. First Chronicles 13 says, 
it is stated that the people were not accustomed to consulting the ark in the days of Saul. After being defeated one day by the Philistines, the next time they faced him, they decided to take the ark to the battle with them. Eli's two boys were required to go with them. But unfortunately that day, the Philistines defeated Israel again in a battle. And to make matters even worse that day, they took the ark of the covenant from Israel that day. When Eli got word that his two sons were killed and that the ark was taken, the Bible says he fell out of his chair and he broke his neck and he died. And at the very same moment, his daughter-in-law, who was giving birth to a son at that moment, upon hearing the news, immediately named her son Ichabod, which meant the glory has departed. Ichabod's mother died at birth that day. Israel was devastated at this news of losing the ark. The glory was gone from its people. But their strategy of catching the ark didn't work out for the Philistines too well. Because the ark belonged to the Israelites, God's people. Their possession of it became a curse to the Philistines while the ark was in their possession. God had struck many of them with tumors. Even at one point, because they looked in the ark, he struck over 50,000 men dead. Pressuring the Philistines to give the ark and cut it back to the Israelites. So after seven months, the Philistines sent the Israelites a message and said, come and get it. Church, the glory always belongs to God's people. It's our enemy's greatest threat. The Philistines were not prepared to handle the glory. The Israelites came and took it to Benadad's house, where it remained for 20 years, and his son was sanctified to keep it, the scripture says. Now, don't miss that statement. It said his son was sanctified to keep it. In other words, he's prepared for it. Sanctification was necessary to receive and handle the glory. That's a very powerful point tonight. Samuel told the people, now the ark of the glory of God is back. If they would repent and put away their false gods, that God would deliver them from the hands of their longtime enemy, the Philistines. And the Bible says, and so they did. And when they gathered in Mizpah, the Philistines attacked them again. But just as God had promised this time, they were unsuccessful to defeat Israel. God's favor and hand of protection was on their side again. Samuel 17 says, The Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines and confused them that Israel was able to overcome them. In verse 13 it says, Though the Philistines were subdued and they did not come any more into the territory of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. I'm just establishing the importance of the Ark of Covenant, the glory to Israel's safety and prosperity, and how important his presence is to his people. It played a key role in Israel being able to restore its nation. And it is what is going to play a key role in God restoring our nation. There's a lot of churches trying to serve God without his presence. And there are no effect to the kingdom of God. They're dead. There's no life in them churches because the glory of the Lord has departed. Upon Saul becoming king, who was anointed by Samuel and supported by the people, he made a mess of his nation. He proceeded to become a rebellious leader. He became a reproach to God's people. He despised David and he was angered by jealousy. He became disobedient to God to the point God finally rejected him as king. Samuel's given the task of telling King Saul. He told him, he said, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So God rejects Saul because of his disobedience. God even had Samuel go and anoint David to be the next king. 
David was truly God's chosen, not chosen by Samuel, nor the people. God chose David not only because he was a warrior, but because of his heart and his love for God. God had prepared David for this time. He said he was a man after his own heart. Once God withdrew his favor from Saul, he became even more rebellious. To the point he even went to a witch at Endor because God wasn't speaking to him anymore. He wanted to speak to Samuel's spirit, and he sure didn't like what Samuel had to tell him that day. Saul fells as king, and he ends up taking his life in battle. His rebellious leadership left Israel in a mess. Upon his death, David's time has come for him to be their king now. David, seeing his nation in turmoil, looked not to himself like Saul as the answer to their problems. The first thing David asked is, where is the ark? Where is the glory? David believed the answer to the problems of his nations was the glory of the Lord had to return. The first thing he sought was God's glory. David knew he couldn't do this without God's help. He knew God's glory would restore the people of his nation, would bring favor back and the hand of protection back to his nation. When we as a nation realize the answer to our nation's problem is the return of the glory of God, and it's not in a man, nor in a government, nor in a president, nor a duly elected king. Only the Lord of lords and the king of kings has the power to truly turn our nation around. When we realize this, we too will begin to seek his glory. It's then that the church will weep and lament and with passion asking God, show us your glory. I told you something is missing What's missing from the house of God is the Shekinah glory of the Lord. The Shekinah glory will be the only thing that will deal with the real issues of our nation and reform the church. Set it back on the right path. Bring back its vitality and importance to this nation. Evil will not prevail against the glory of God. It will fall like Dagon fell when they placed it in the same room with the ark. It can't stay in the same place with the glory. The glory of God will bring men to repentance because the heart of man is sick and wounded. It will bring judgment to the house of God. It will bring God's favor to his people, and it will be the hand of protection and direction for the body of Christ when consulted. It will break down traditions and fads and barriers. It will expose deception and false prophets. It will keep the flesh suppressed. It will turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the hearts of the children back to their fathers. It will prepare the hearts of men and women for the second coming of the Lord. We need a good leader, but we need the one God chooses for our nation, not just simply a man chosen by public acclamation. He needs to be a godly man who understands he can't turn this nation around without the help of God Almighty. You know, every president's given executive privileges, the power to override congressional laws by signing executive orders. Every president has done this, usually more so in the first 100 days. Many have made executive orders on their first day in office. And they do so based on making personal decisions and personal agendas on how they feel to govern this nation by what they feel is most important to them. Their first priority to get their agenda rolling. Sadly, our current president's first executive order was to stop building a wall that was being built for the safety of our nation. 
Really? With all the chaos of our nation, he felt his priority was to make an executive order that would make our nation less safer? Lord, if we only had a king like David who had a heart like David for God. Do you know what his first executive order was when he became king? David declares, we're going to pursue the ark that will bring the glory back to our nation with such a passion that it'll bring it back to our nation. We're going to pray, but we're also going to physically pursue it, and we're going after it with our bodies, our minds, and our souls. David's first executive order of his kingship was not to cut taxes. It wasn't to reform health care or some new green deal. It was we are going to get the glory back. As a true worshiper, David wanted to be close to the ark in God's presence. By bringing the ark back to Zion, David was saying God's presence is important to me and to this nation. He was saying spiritual things are my top priority. I want to be as close to God as possible. Moses know the story of David's first attempt to bring the ark back. Didn't go well for him. While his motives were right, the method he used was wrong. David made a few mistakes in his pursuit of the glory. Flesh got in the way. Because the proper preparation wasn't taken to handle it. Now, I'm going to go through this quickly because there's a lot of detail, but I'm going to generalize this. What he did, he gathered his men and went to Benedict's house to remove it and bring it back. They loaded it on a new card. And upon them making their journey back to the city of David, the worship team and the praise band, they played their instruments all the long way celebrating. Till suddenly, the oxen pulling the cart stumbles Uzzah reaches out and touches the ark as to keep it from falling and is struck dead at the very moment. No man was to ever touch the ark. The flesh will always stop a move of God and cause the glory to depart. David becomes angry and even afraid that day. He decided the cost of bringing the glory back was too much. And he sent the ark away to Obadiah's house, who was a Levite. It remained there for 90 days. And because of the great care that Obadiah took of it, God began to bless his socks off. Wherever the glory is, God's favor is found. David hears of it, inquires the Lord, what did I do so wrong? David received instruction from the Lord. He learned how he tried to bring it back his way and not God's way. He learned it was to be carried on the shoulders of the priest and not a cart. He learned his people had to be prepared to handle it and a place has to be prepared for it to rest. So David called all the people together and told them to prepare themselves. He says, sanctify yourselves. He told the Levi priests, be prepared to carry it. He told even the doorkeepers, sanctify yourselves. And he built a place for it. So this time he followed God's instructions and not his own. He got flesh out of the way. And this time the priests were anointed. This time the praise and the worship was anointed because preparation had been made by sanctification. To sanctify yourself is to set yourself apart from sin for a sacred purpose. When the people got sanctified, got hungry for the things of God, the glory returned back to the city of David. Church, we need the glory of God to return back to the city of Popper Bluff, Missouri. Back to God's house. We can have great preaching and teaching and singing in a talented praise band, but without the glory, flesh will prevail. Celebrities will be birthed. A lot of noise will be made, but it will be nothing more than brass twinkling in the wind because 
the, causing the glory to depart. But where the people hunger and they thirst after righteousness, where people prepare and sanctify themselves, and where there is a place prepared, the glory will return. And the reformation of the church will produce an end-time harvest in this house. If not in this house, somewhere God will deposit his glory. And I'll tell you where it belongs. It belongs back in the house of the Lord. There's a lot of buildings full of people claiming to be the church. But something is missing to rightfully validate it as the church. And a lot of churches don't even know it's missing because they don't know what they're missing because they've never experienced his glory. And David said, that's why I'm so adamant about it, folks. He knew the importance of having his presence in his life and his presence in his nation. How can you miss something you've never had? How can the church survive and grow with people just showing up Sunday after Sunday going through rituals and traditions of men? I'm telling you right now, in the midst of all of our troubles, God is depositing his glory where people are sanctifying themselves and making preparation and know how to handle it. Whether it's in a church, whether it's on a street corner, or whether it's on the beach, whether it's under a bridge or smack dab in the devil's territory, the reformation has begun and a harvest of souls has begun in this nation. And in some of the darkest corners of this earth are going to be the brightest lights illuminated by the glory of the Lord. And it will not depart unless flesh gets in the way and tries to touch it. God's not into anointing celebrities. He's into anointing his messengers. Isaiah declares this whole earth is full of his glory. Church, it covers the earth. We just got to learn how to usher it in. God's looking for ushers like doormen and gatekeepers who are sanctified and prepared to handle the glory. Do you know we could enter into the presence of God right now if we would press in and open up the gates of our heart this night? Do you know we could kick off revival right now, this very moment? Oh, but Randy, we don't have a guest speaker. We didn't pass out flyers telling when it's going to happen. We haven't announced it yet on Facebook. And we haven't decided how many days we're going to allow it. So how are we going to just have revival break out right now on this Sunday night? That's my point. Them days are over. Spontaneity is going to be the new course of revival. You're never going to know when or where it's going to move. Going to be in some of the most unusual places. Going to be having some of the most peculiar times. It's going to be working through some of the most unusual people that's going to experience a move of God. There's going to be men and women and children who because of their hunger for God are going to usher in the presence of God spontaneously. If he can't move in the church, 
He'll move at the workplace. If he can't move in the workplace, he'll move at a restaurant. If he can't move at a restaurant, he'll move in a ghetto. If he can't move in a ghetto, he'll move in a prison. If he can't move in a prison, he'll move in a crack house. Because this move is not going to be governed by the church board or dictated by convenience or stifled by complacency. Only God's going to be in charge of this move. God ain't got time for red tape, Pharisees, Sadducees, and piety. There's a harvest ready to be harvested. And the fields are ripe. He's just looking for the laborers who go into the fields and help gather them in. Operating under the anointing of the glory of God. The moment that Israel wanted an earthly king more than a heavenly king. The moment they wanted to depend on a man of their choosing more than God. The glory departed their enemy defeated them. But the moment God chose a man who depended on God more than himself and led his nation to do the same, the glory came back and God defeated their enemies and restored favor back to their nation. I'm here to tell you the glory's coming back to the church, the body of Christ, before the second coming of Jesus Christ to prepare the way. I've come to tell you upon the return of God's glory, God is going to vindicate his church. The church has been shaken. The church has been lied on. The church has been persecuted. But the enemy has underestimated this sleeping giant. If we fall on our faces and seek for the glory of God and prepare for its return, we're going to be singing, the enemy's been defeated and death couldn't hold us down. And we're going to be shouting unto God with a voice of triumph. God has a plan to turn this nation around when this nation has a plan to turn back to God. We can't do it without the presence of God. For if God be for us, who can be against us? Psalms 24 says, I know you ain't heard this lately. The earth is the Lord's. And everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in the idol or swear by a false god. They will see blessing from the Lord and what? Vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Do you hear God's promise? The generation that seeks him will receive blessings and vindication. If we want God's favor and we want our nation to be vindicated, we must seek his glory. Do you know what vindication is? It's proof that someone or something is right or justified. I can hardly wait for God to vindicate the body of Christ and show the world that we were right, that we have the right answer, that we serve the right God, that we were right, therefore we win in the end. But to do so, we must have clean hands and a clean heart and not trust in idols nor swear by a false God. In other words, we must be sanctified. That was a lesson David learned. 
The first time he went to seek the ark, the glory, they were not prepared. They were not sanctified. Therefore, flesh got in the way. No flesh will ever glory in his presence. As a result, they did not receive the glory. Matter of fact, they felt the price was too high to pay. When they failed to handle God's glory in the right way, David sent the ark, the glory, to Obed-Edom's house. You know what it doesn't say? But knowing what we've learned about the glory and what it takes to house his glory, it's pretty evident to me Obed-Edom's house must have been prepared for it. God wasn't going to let them just send it to a place that was no more prepared than them. God won't send his glory to a house that isn't prepared to house it. It's too valuable. Flesh can't handle it. And if the house can't handle it, he'll send it to someone else who can. Remember the Philistines tried to house it when they captured the ark? But they couldn't handle it to the point they gave it back. You see, to whom much is given, much is required. So you see, much is required to house God's glory. You know, there's at times we, we have seen and gotten a visitation. But God desires to make a deposit in his house. We see the evidence because God began to bless the socks off Obadiah's house. Favor was poured out upon his house. If we don't want to prepare for it, someone else will. And the glory will not come, never come to dwell in a house without preparation. Folks, it's the divine presence of God. It's not simply a visitation. It's an inhabitation. It's where God chooses to make a deposit. You know, you choose where you deposit your money in the bank, don't you? And one of the defining factors is making sure where you put it, they can handle it, correct? Why? Because it's valuable to you. So does God when he's going to deposit his glory. He's going to be where it's going to be where he believes the people are going to handle it, where they understand the value of it, where no flesh will try to glory in his presence. You know what I truly believe? I believe we've been preparing for a long time. I do. I believe we as a church have been striving to sanctify ourselves. And I believe we are now at a point we have to simply learn how to usher in the presence of God. How many in here are ready to be ushers? Hallelujah. I believe we've prepared a place for God to dwell. I believe it. I believe as ushers... We now, like gatekeepers, have to open the doors of our hearts and allow the glory to come in. You see, I believe the church has to take its rightful place in our cities across the nation. It's not a time for us to be hid out like Gideon, while year after year the enemy came and took their crops, their animals, their land. Gideon, a mighty man of valor, came to believe he could no longer make a difference. He had accepted defeat for his nation. And those characteristics are too much like the church of today. While we're hiding out in these church walls, good Christian men and women, the enemy year after year, day after day, is destroying and ravaging our nation. And now too many believe we can no longer make a difference. We're discouraged that our government isn't doing more. People will depend on the government when they can't depend on the church any longer. The church no longer believes it's a restraining force. Why? I'll tell you why. Something's missing. The glory has departed. And we're being mocked like the prophetess Deborah, who's, on a, who's having church on an, up on a mountain 
When down below or in the valley below, the enemy was ravaging the land. The enemy never feared her or their church. Well, they'd mock and they'd scream and they'd laugh at Deborah and they'd shout, her God's just a God of the mountain. He's not God down here. This is our land. We rule the earth until one day that church came down off of that mountain with the glory of God surrounded all about them. And that day, with God's favor, they destroyed their enemy in over 900 iron chariots. And I've come tonight to tell you it's time for the church to come down off this hill and destroy the works of our enemies and take back our city. This is where God has placed us. And when the glory returns back to the church with God on our side, with his hand of protection in our life, we will be victorious again. There's got to be a remnant in the midst of all this chaos that believes with God on our side who can be against us. What am I saying? I'm saying it's time for the glory of God to return back to the church and for the church to go outside these walls and take back what the enemy has stolen from us and turn this city upside down for the glory of God. This place should be where we get our marching orders from, where we're anointed and appointed for our assignments out there. We must go into the world and preach the gospel. He didn't say the world must come into the church. He told the church to go into the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things which I've commanded you. It's time to be the church without walls. You're fixing to see church happening on the streets of this nation, folks, like never before. It's time for us to usher in his presence. Lift up your head, you gates. He calls them gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your head, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord almighty. He is the king of glory. Musicians, if you'll come to the stage and just play behind me softly, please. Would you stand with me, please? When David, the leader of that nation, gave an executive order, we're going to pursue the ark, the glory of God. And the people agreed to prepare. Revival came to that city. David danced before the Lord so hard that day. He came out of his priestly garment, showing I'm a man like you. I need God too. I'm going to obey the Lord right here. I don't believe we got to pray without the glory anymore. I don't believe we have to worship and praise without the glory anymore. I don't believe our praise band has to play without the glory anymore. I don't believe we got to dance without the glory anymore. I don't believe we got to preach without the glory anymore. I don't believe we got to teach without the glory anymore. I don't believe we have to be a church without the glory anymore. Why? Because I believe it's time for the church to usher in his presence. It's time for the glory to return back to the church. I don't think it has to be hit and miss. I don't think being the house of the Lord should be burdened. Being in the house of the Lord should be burdensome. It ought to be refreshing to you. 
Why? Because the Spirit of the Lord should be here. Therefore, miracles can happen now. Deliverance can happen now. Souls can be transformed now. God can get all the glory now. Is anybody in here ready to usher in the presence of the Lord? Right here, right now, this night, once we believe it can happen, we will experience it happen. This place can be a place of salvations, healings, deliverance on a continual basis. So often we all speak, we all want the same thing, but it just seems like we never want it at the same time. Why should we have to wait any longer? We must seek for it now. We can take it from here to out there and we can win this city for the glory of God. It's going to happen somewhere, church. Why not here? While the government tries to convince this nation it can take care of its people if we'll just surrender to their empire. It's time for the church to take this opportunity to show this nation only God can do that if we'll surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. We'll take this nation back for the glory of the Lord. Lift up your heads, O daughter of Zion. Help's coming. God's fixing to vindicate the church and show the world we have had it right all along. That only God can save our souls and prosper this nation. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And if we'll repent and put away our false gods, God will deliver us from the hands of our enemies like he did Israel from the Philistines. When they placed the ark beside the idol god Dagon, when they came in the next morning, the glory had then tore that idol down. I'm telling you, when the glory comes down, every high thing must come down and every stronghold shall be broken. America has come to a place we feel a president. Our government is the answer to our problems. If we could just get this man or if we could get this woman in the White House, our problems will be solved. We become more dependent on an earthly king more than we have our heavenly king. And we've made a grave mistake, and now judgment is coming. I'll give you, we need the right ones in those positions. But can I be candid? I don't care how cheap taxes get. I don't care how cheap gas gets. I don't care how big the stock market gets. Unless we deal with the root of all evil, we can still be a nation doomed for hell. Sin is a reproach to any nation, for it is righteousness that exalteth a nation. Church, we got a sin problem. That money can't fix. Matter of fact, the love of money is one of our prevailing sins. Greed for wealth is at the center of our corruption. I'm telling you, I'd rather be dead broke, eating manna, and falling a cloud by day and a pillar by night than to be wallowing in the sins of this nation. What does it profit me to gain the whole world only to lose my soul? We need an earthly king like David, chosen by God, who depend on the king of kings and the king above all kings to help us rule and reign in this nation. You want to know what the glory looks like? And I'm closing. When it comes back to the house of God, Isaiah tells us what it looked like. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphims, each with six wings. 
With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. I want you to notice three things that were evidence when his glory fell. The sounds of voices. Praise was evidence. As their praises went up, God's glory came down. And it happened in the temple, identifying the place where it happened, in God's house. And the smoke as pure, appeared as a physical evidence of his manifested presence. His glory like a cloud filled the room. That scripture reminds us how Isaiah had the privilege of witnessing the glory of God being manifested in his presence. To prove to you and to me that God can and will deposit his glory in his house. There was evidence to prove it. And I believe that what he did then, church, he can still do now. I beseech you, O Lord, show us your glory. The glory is the manifestation of God's presence. You know what I need right now? I need our prayer warriors to come to the altar, if you would please. Kathy, get your people to pray. Sister Marvin, get your people to pray. Craig Reynolds, if you're here, get your men to pray. Just come here right for right now and line up here and stand in front of me. If you're a prayer warrior and you declare, I'm a prayer warrior, I want you to come and stand here. Anybody, young or old. There's some young people. There's some kids I know that can pray better than some of us that know how to get a hold of God. Those of you up here, I want you to remember this. It's the effectual, fervent prayers of the righteous that availeth much. What I want you to do is begin to intercede for this night. I want you to pray. Don't worry about interrupting me. You pray like you pray. I don't care how loud you are. And once the presence of God has come upon you, in a moment there's going to be some people behind you. And I want you to begin to lay your hands on these people. While they're praying, I want praisers to come up and line behind them. You say, I can praise God. I love to praise God. I worship my Lord, my Savior. I want my praisers. I want those that say, I praise. I praise Him every day. I want you to come behind Him and get ready. I feel the presence of the Lord entering this room. I got my people praying. I got some people that are praising. In a minute, we're going to have praise. But right now, hallelujah. I need every single person who says, I truly want to see the glory of God come into my life. I want to be a part of, I want to be that usher that helps usher in the presence of the Lord. Come on, move on in. Get in tight. All over. I'm speaking to the whole church. I need those who want to usher in the presence of God. That want to be a part. 
You guys just keep on praying.